I'm curious how you guys think about God and about his relationship with difficulties or hardships. You know, there's this story in the Bible. Some of you may, if you grew up in Sunday school, you've probably heard this story. There's a prophet named Elijah. And Elijah was off in the wilderness, and he was running from this evil king. And he was, um, he was in this like little river valley, and God was feeding him. But he's told to go out of the nation of Israel. And so he goes off, and he comes upon this woman. And he asks the woman if she could give him something to eat. And the woman says to him, well, uh, actually, what I'm doing is I'm about to prepare. I've got a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. I'm about to prepare my last meal for my son and myself, and we're going to eat it, and that's all we have, so then we're going to die. And Elijah has the gall to say, well, that sounds like not a great idea, but, you know, if you've got to do what you've got to do, but could you feed me first? Right? Could you just like, you know, I know you don't really have anything, but could you just give me food first? Because I don't know if you've noticed, I'm kind of hungry. And she agrees to do it. And then does anyone know what miracle happens? They get more and more and more. They never run out of flour. They never run out of oil. But then what happens is that sometime later, the woman's son dies. And she says the most interesting thing. She tells Elijah, the prophet, there's this idea that, well, Elijah's an important person to God, so wherever Elijah goes, God's paying attention. She says, if you weren't here, the the eyes of of the Lord would not have been on me, and I would not have suffered this catastrophe. And I ever wonder, and I mean, I often wonder, you know, what exactly she was thinking about. But then, you know, I think it's not that uncommon. I think sometimes we think, Maybe wrongly that maybe it's better for the Lord not to pay too much attention to me. Because if he does, he might not send good things. He might send bad things. And the flip side of that is, have you ever been in a place in your life where everything's going wrong? One person? Okay. So we'll ask that way. Like for that one person, when everything's going, do you ever think like, what did I do wrong? What is God punishing me for? Have you felt that way? Absolutely. This is a really common feeling and belief uh, that we just think, well, if, if everything's going bad, then obviously the Lord is not on my side. And then finally, I wonder if you've ever looked at someone and, you, and it looks like everything's going right and you think, well, the Lord must like that person. Can you relate to that? And so what I want to talk to you today about is this idea of having the peace of God or peace with God through Jesus Christ. And this isn't per se a Palm Sunday sermon, but here at Fellowship, we've been going through the book of Romans. And I thought of doing something different, but then I realized, you know, actually, I think when we talk about, uh, and we're preparing for Easter, this, this passage actually is really, really helpful for us to think about what it is that Jesus was doing when he rode into that city on the donkey, when he did all the things that he did in Holy Week with the Last Supper and, and being arrested and put to death on a cross, and then on that next Sunday being raised from the dead, I think this really helps us to get a better picture of why he was doing what he was doing and what it means for us. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you open it to Romans 5. If you don't, there's one that looks like this underneath a chair very close to you. Maybe not your chair, but one very close by. And then, of course, feel free to open up a tablet or a phone or whatever and just go to Romans chapter 5. But in this passage, we have just finished talking about how, actually a lot about what we read in our catechism question, that all of us, all of us fall short of God's standards of holiness. All of us fail to be righteous. Each one of us has, what the Bible says, fallen short of the glory of God. But God has provided a way for us to be righteous apart from following all the laws. And Paul goes to great pains to show that nobody follows the law. And in fact, if you break any part of the law, you are a lawbreaker. But through Christ, all of us can experience and have the righteousness of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's just kind of explained all those pieces. And and basically, he said in Romans 1 that the righteous by faith will live. 
And so the first four chapters of Romans is Paul explaining what it means to have righteousness by faith. And then now 5 through 8, which is a section unto itself, Paul's going to explain what does it look like then to live? What does it look like then to live if you are righteous by faith? And for those who haven't been with us, the simplest explanation is that when you put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, not in what you've done, but in what he's done, then by faith you can have the righteousness of God. Without that faith, you will never be able to have the righteousness of God. And as harsh as that may sound, the wonderful news is that Jesus came so that even though you couldn't be righteous on your own, that through him you could be. So that's Romans 1 through 4. If you missed it, you read it right here in the Bible. You go online, check out on our website, uh, fellowshipindedom.org. You can see those sermons if you want to go back and see what you may have missed. But let me start simply with a question. The question is, if righteousness truly is by faith, how will the righteous live? How will we, how will they live? And Paul's basic answer, which we're going to look at today, is they will live at peace with God, boasting in our sufferings since we rest in God's love. Now, I know that sentence has some really positive aspects to it, and it has some pretty scary ones too, right? Who in the world wants to boast in their sufferings? I'm going to show you what Paul means, uh, and, we'll, and we'll see how this plays out. So in Romans 5, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, therefore, meaning we've, talk, we've talked about all this stuff about the righteous being only by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, meaning made righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. By the way, that word boast in the hope of the glory of God and that word glory in our sufferings, boast and glory, it's the same word, same word in the Greek behind those two, those two words, boast and glory. And I think they're switched just a little bit because the other word for glory is also in the previous verse. But I think we can very likely very appropriately say that we boast in the hope of the glory of God and we also boast in our sufferings. Because we know that sufferings produce perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I want to stop there and we're going to pick up in a moment. But this whole thing of boasting, this whole thing of glory, like what is Paul talking about and how does it fit in? And we've talked a little bit about this concept already in the series, but uh, it's really helpful to understand that we, we live here in the West, and not everyone who's in this room is from this country, but if you're a Westerner, meaning you're not from Asia, you're not from the East, those in the West typically have um, our... Our concept of morality is generally aligned along the, the ideas of guilt, right? Being guilt or guiltless. But in the society that this book, the Bible, is written in, whether it's the, uh, you know, the Middle East or the Far East, those, those cultures tend to have what's more of called an honor-shame society. So guilt and shame are not the same thing, Right? Uh, Guilt is the idea that I have objectively done something wrong. And shame is this idea of uh, kind of like I I am not acceptable because I've messed up. And And it's based, typically, the way honor and shame work out in society, and it is a societal type of thing, is that is that within the community, the community decides ultimately whether you are shamed or not whether you're honored or not. But it kind of works like this, and this is, this, is a kind of, this is a somewhat clinical way of explaining it, so this is not necessarily the conscious thought in practice, but it goes like this. Uh, I have put my trust in something, right? I put my trust in an idea. I put my trust in an action. I put my trust in a resource. And if that idea or action or resource is shown to be trustworthy, 
meaning it fulfills the thing that I expected it to fulfill, then the community will recognize that I have honor because I put my trust in the right thing. So, for example, if you uh, are in a community and you invite someone in to help the community with a project and that project goes success, is successful, then you will have honor. But if that project turns out horribly and the person you brought in tries to cheat the community or swindle them, right, then you've put your trust in the wrong place and now the community will basically put shame on you. You will be shamed. Now Paul here is talking about the glory of God, glorying in our sufferings, boasting. By the way, boasting and glorying in are very similar idea. That's why the translation issues there. But it's basically this idea that Paul uh, is saying that for a believer in Jesus Christ, we can actually put our hope in and be approved by the community when we put our hope in our sufferings. But that is the exact opposite of what anyone in the, in the community that Paul's writing to would have expected. What would you want to put your hope in? Would you want to put your hope in something strong or something weak? Strong, right? That makes sense. Put your hope in something strong because you're more likely to be approved in your choice and where your hope is placed. If you put your hope in something weak, you're more likely... To, be, to receive shame because it will not fulfill what you hoped it would do. And is suffering a sign of strength or is it a sign of weakness? I th- yeah, I think Paul's going to make the case that it's a sign of strength, but we naturally would think that suffering is a sign of weakness. And before the Lord, we would think of suffering as a sign of not being accepted by God. Right? We already talked about it. Have you ever felt like everything's going wrong and you think, Lord, what, what did I do wrong? Why are you angry at me? Suffering for us naturally, intuitively, is a sign of God's disapproval of us, which is the ultimate shame, right? It's bad enough if you guys think I'm not good enough, but if God thinks I'm not good enough, the amount of shame that I would receive from that is massive. But Paul says the opposite. He says we boast in, we glory in, Suffering. And I think it goes something like this. I think the, the concept is something like this. And by the way, uh, glory and honor are very similar, very tightly linked, and glory and boasting are very tightly linked. And up on the slide, I have the word rejoice there because in some other translations it says we rejoice in our suffering. But it's that jo- rejoicing in, glorying in, boasting in, they all come from one Greek word that has this interesting range of meanings. And it's difficult to know which aspect to draw out in the English translation because it has all those connotations. So whether your Bible says, I rejoice in sufferings, or I glory in sufferings, or I boast in sufferings, all of those tightly linked concepts are brought together. Because if you do glory in something or boast in something, then you do also rejoice in it because it brings you honor. Right? It doesn't bring you shame. But how could that be? You guys know this verse in 1 John 4.18? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Have you heard that one? I've heard this verse used a lot when someone is actually afraid. Uh, and it's in, meant to encourage them not to be afraid. Right? And, you know, we can use it in all sorts of ways that, that probably aren't meant to be used. Like, I, I think, Astra, I'm having trouble there, so if you can just get back on that. Uh, I wanna, if, you were, if you were out walking through, um, if you were out walking through the jungles of Brazil, I don't know if you guys know, in the early 1900s, there were lots of explorers that went to Brazil to explore the Amazon basin, and a lot of them just never came back, right? Now, if you're walking through these jungles of Brazil, and in those jungles... It was notorious for the bugs, notorious for the animals, notorious for the plants that were poisonous and deadly. And it's basically like, if you didn't know what you were doing, you were most likely going to die there. You know, it, and, but also there were these groups of natives who did not want any white people there. So they were also notorious for attacking explorers and killing them. 
And they would often, uh, you know, save, you know, preserve their bones and they would show them to future explorers. It's kind of like really intense. So if you're going through this, the Amazon jungle and um, you fall into piranha-infested waters, should you be afraid? Right? And then would you say, hey, hey, Johnny, don't worry. I love you. Don't worry about it. Or if you see someone about to eat a poisonous plant, would you, would you, and they're, you know, they're just about to put it in their mouth, would you think, oh, I'm not even going to warn that guy. Like, he doesn't need to be afraid. We all love him. Right? That's not what it's talking about. On the next slide, we can see really that the, the whole passage, you know, a little bit more context for this passage, that the part we often don't put on the bumper sticker, that we don't put on the meme, or we don't, you know, we don't cite as often, but it says, God is love. We cite that part. We love that part, right? Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So just stop right there. Confidence on the day of judgment. This passage is about the day when we stand before the Lord and we have to account for our life. And God is going to look at us and either declare us righteous or declare us guilty. And the next slide says, In this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So it's not talking about being afraid generally. It's talking about being afraid of judgment in your life before God. But that when you know the love of God, you don't have to fear judgment. Because you know you're not going to be punished because God receives you as a son or a daughter, that he has brought you into his family, that he loves you. And I think I mentioned this last week or the week before. It's the difference between, uh, you know, when a kid says, you know, I've done something horribly wrong, don't tell dad. Or the kid that says, I've done something horribly wrong, I've got to tell my dad. You know, one is fearing judgment. The other knows that the father loves them and receives them and accepts them because they know their father's love. Right? Earthly fathers sometimes do quickly turn to punishment. But our heavenly father, for those he loves, does not. And so it's this idea of, uh, you know, if fear is about punishment, right? And when bad things happen to us, we're afraid that God is punishing us. But because we know that our righteousness is not from what we do, but from what Jesus has done for us, then we don't have to live in that fear anymore. We know that when we face God at the end of our life, He's going to look at us and declare us righteous even when we mess up because Jesus is the one who was righteous for us. And our righteousness doesn't come from works, but it comes through faith. So if we are righteous before God, and that gives us peace, we don't have to fear judgment and punishment, then all of a sudden, we could look at our sufferings in a totally different light. Our sufferings are not what God does when He's angry at us. Our sufferings are what God is using to develop us into more mature and complete, hopeful people. The... Um, the idea here is that, can we go to the next slide, Astra? Is that um, your knowledge of Christ and of your righteousness and of God's love, when you couple that with sufferings that come, hardships, difficulties, challenges, right? You realize that those don't equal God's judgment on you. They actually equal your growing and perseverance, and that when you face that suffering well and persevere through it, it actually develops your character. And when your character is grown, it results in this hope, hope for the future. Look what it says here. Verse 3 again. And I'm going to use the word boast. I think that's the better translation. I'm not down on glory, but it just, I think it's more clear. Verse 3, not only so, but we also boast in our sufferings. Because we know that sufferings produce perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. 
This is not wishful thinking. This isn't like, oh, I hope this works out. I'm going to put my trust in it because I hope it works out. This kind of hope that God talks about is an assurance of the future, an assurance of God's faithfulness, so that when we put our hope in God, when we put our hope in this kind of righteousness, when we put our hope in God's love, it will never put us to shame, meaning we will never be shown to have put our hope in the wrong place. And everyone around us will be able to see, the community will be able to see at the end of time that we have put our hope in the right place. And so we will not be put to shame. We will be honored. And again, honor, glory, boasting, I said they're all very similar. I think this is what it means when God talks about that we will also be raised up in glory. We will also be glorified in Christ because we will be given honor for having put our trust in the Lord. Totally changes the way we think about suffering, right? If you are experiencing a hardship, what do you often pray for? Lord, get me out of this hardship. And God says, I read you loud and clear. However, I'm using this for something better than your comfort. And I love you so much, just like all of you parents have loved your children. I love you so much that I'm not going to let you stay a 3-year-old or a 5-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old or even a 20-year-old or even a 40-year-old forever. You're going to keep growing because I love you that much. And here's the great part. My love, my presence, my spirit, your, the, this uh, uh, grace of God, it's going to be with you through the whole process. So you don't have to be afraid. You can be at peace with the assurance that I'm going to carry you through. You know, as Paul is saying this, or he's writing this, right? Uh, You might be thinking, well, you know, that sounds great and all, (laughs) but it's still going to be hard, right? Because don't, Aren't there sometimes we kind of either accidentally or unintentionally give people the impression that, you know, if you put your faith in Jesus, then your life's going to get so much better. And people interpret that as meaning so much easier. Right? You know, all your worries go away. It's, um, you know, uh, gray skies are going to clear up. Put on a happy face. Now that you have Jesus, troubles are far away. You know, it's like, it doesn't work quite like that because actually Jesus promises that we're going to have troubles. He promises that we're going to suffer if we put our faith in him. He promises that we're going to be treated poorly if we put our faith in him. That's not a really good uh, evangelistic message But Jesus uses it to the masses over and over and over again. And if you read the Gospels, what you notice is that people keep coming to Jesus in droves, and he keeps sending them away in droves. There's this guy, this really great, like if if you're thinking like a a founder of a religion, and there's this really rich, influential guy who says, hey, I want to follow you and make you my master. If you were starting a religion, you might think, oh, this would be really helpful this guy's got money, and, you know, I don't even have a place to lay my head. You know, sometimes we're struggling just to, to make ends meet. This guy's got money. He's got influence. You know, if I really want to change the world, I should, I should get the influencers on board, right, because they have a platform, right? He can give this message out to a lot of people that I have no access to. So I think this is a great idea, and that's exactly what Jesus does, right? No. He says, you cannot follow me. Unless you give all your money away, basically lose all your position, uh, you have to forsake everything that you've known, then, maybe then, you'll be, you'll be okay to follow me. And this guy goes home very sad because he's very wealthy. And he couldn't give it up, right? I for, totally forgot why I'm telling that story. <laughs> oh, just to say this. That guy's life would have gotten way worse if he had followed Jesus in a natural sense. 
right? And, and most of us are also, honestly, too wealthy to do what Jesus asked him to do. Even if you don't have a lot, most of us wouldn't be willing to give up what we have to do what Jesus said, giving up everything, forsaking everything. He says, you know, leave your parents behind, leave your families behind. You know, we would look very poorly upon that model today. That's what Jesus did. He's constantly sending people away. He's constantly reducing his influence, reducing his numbers. There's this point where people are literally trying to make him king earlier in his ministry, not, not on Palm Sunday when he comes in on that donkey, but a year or so earlier he's out preaching and thousands of people are there and they're hungry and he takes a couple of loaves of bread and takes a couple of fish and he breaks them up and he starts handing out food and thousands and th- it says there's 5,000 men plus their wives and children. So 15,000, 20,000 people get fed that day. They want to make him king. And he runs away. He runs away. His PR guy lost that battle. Peter, right? Peter was like, Lord, this is awesome. They're going to make you king. We're going to usher in the kingdom. Uh, I know what James and John said, but I love to be at your right hand. I, can I be your prime minister? How does this work? And Jesus is like, you know, you guys get in a boat, and I'm going to go off into nowhere, and I'll catch you later. And he sends everyone away. Jesus is constantly doing that. Uh, why is that? Because the message is harder than what we're willing to, often willing to accept. Right? It's easy to believe when Jesus is handing out gifts. Right? It's easy to believe when you're getting fed. It's easy to believe when the blessings that we perceive as blessings are coming. And Jesus says, I've actually got a different kind of blessing for you that I want you to receive. It's a blessing that hurts, but it results in something way better than you having more money or even having better health. It's about having a better heart. He's always doing that. But you need to know that in order to be able to face your sufferings the way Jesus did. Right? Jesus faced suffering on the cross because he knew there was something better on the other side. We can face sufferings in our life because we know something's better on the other side. And the Bible even tells us that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. So what would make us think that we would be made perfect any other way? So this whole section of 5 through 8 is really about that. It looks like it's about a bunch of different things, but it's really about this thing of how do you live as a person who's made righteous by faith. And the thing that Paul decides to focus on the most is that you boast in your sufferings because you know God's love and therefore you're at peace with God no matter what comes. Man, that's not what I was expecting. Can we go to that next slide? I don't know how well you can see this. There's a lot of information on there. But just to remind you, that this is what happens when you have faith. And faith is simply this. Faith is, first of all, knowledge. It's the knowledge of who God is and what his plans are. If you know the kind of God you follow and you know what his intentions are for your life, uh, then, then you can actually accept that as true. That's the next one, assent, believing that it's true. Now, by the way, James talks about this in his book. Satan knows who God is. And Satan knows God's plans. Satan also believes that they're true. Satan's problem is not that he doesn't know who God is or that he doesn't believe that God's really who he says he is. He knows very well who God is and he knows what his plans are. Satan has read this book, right? He knows it better than you do. Here's what Satan's missing. is Number three is this love commitment. It's not just enough to believe that something's true, but you actually place your whole life on it, showing that you believe that it's true. We've probably all seen the illustration where someone pulls out a chair and they say, oh, will that chair hold you up? And they say, yeah, it'll hold you up. It'll hold me up. Well, how do you know it will hold you up? Well, I don't. Well, will you sit in it? And if you sit in it, then you've you've like shown that you really believe it'll hold you up. You know, have you seen that before? It's like that on your whole life scale. 
your whole life. It would be like if the chair were a thousand feet above the ground, suspended by a wire. And if it doesn't hold you up, then you will be dead. But you sit on it anyway. This love commitment is a necessary part of faith, but then it results in this beautiful thing which is called hope. And I think a lot of us Christians often walk around without exhibiting a lot of hope. And so I just point you to that to say, if you're struggling, if you're struggling to boast and, be, and rejoice in and glory in your sufferings, if you're, if you're having a hard time seeing this difficult world as something that's good for you and not something that's bad for you, then it just is an opportunity to go back and, and encourage your own faith again. I was sharing with Sonia just a couple of days ago. We were driving somewhere. There was traffic. They were doing construction on 95 the other day on Friday. And, I, and, and, this is, and then also there have been like some other things brewing. And I just turned to her and I said, you know, I'm at a point where I'm just really sick of living on this planet Like, I'm tired of this planet. Like, why is it not the case that we can get in our car and we can just transport to where we want to go? Why do I have to drive through this traffic? And on the way, we actually passed, you know, but we were leaving Dedham. There's a gas station. It's like, lottery, $94 million. I'm like, why why don't I just win the lottery? And then I won't have to worry about money ever again. Like, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Like, why does it have to be so hard all the time? I had lost sight of the very message that I was going to be preaching within 40 hour, 48 hours, right? I had been studying this passage all week, reading it, reading about it, processing it, thinking about it, how to deliver it. And then on Friday night, I'm like, why do I have to drive in traffic? Why can't I have a tr- like a Star Trek transporter? Like that's where I was, right? So what do I do? I go back and I say, okay, Lord, I trust you. I trust that it's better for me to sit in traffic than it is to have a transporter because it teaches me patience and perseverance and it affects my character. And I know in the end that leads to greater hope than the hope of winning the lottery or the hope of somehow someone inventing a transporter. Those, those desires will lead me to shame, but my desire for the Lord will bring me honor and glory. You see this? You see it playing out? So hope is an intrinsic part of faith. And if you don't have hope, then go and work on your faith. And sometimes what all I mean by that is remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of the truth. All right, so we actually only got up to verse 5, right? So let's look at verse 6. Because there's a question here of like, well, then how did this all work out? Can we go to the next? Yeah, that's perfect. It says, you see, at just the right time, When you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, why is this so important? Why is Paul bringing this up now? His point is this. If when you were totally powerless... And you are ungodly. I really prefer the translation wicked. just has a better ring to it. And while you were still a sinner, right? And he's going to go on to say, well, we were God's enemies. When you were powerless, wicked, sinner, and an enemy of God, God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. And his point is this. Why would you think that if you mess up now, God's going to come down on you so hard that he's going to unleash this wrath and suffering in your life now that you've already been redeemed from that state of being completely against God to now being his son or daughter? He's saying if God loved you then, how much more can he love you now? Because before you were wicked and weak and, you know, all these, you know, anti-God and, right, all the stuff from Romans 118 that we, that we look at and we shudder. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then you see where this is going, right? Since we have been justified by his blood, meaning the blood of Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins, since, since it was, I mean, when he says blood, he's bringing all this stuff in. You know, God of the universe who gives up all of his prerogatives and rights as God and becomes a lowly human being. You know, it's like it'd be worse than you becoming an ant because God is so much higher than us that the chasm between us and ants is not as big as the chasm between him and us in that sense. And his glory, his greatness, his rights, his prerogatives, his, his expression of his will. He gives all that up to become a human being. And then he says, I'm going to become the lowest of lowest of human beings. I'm going to be the servant and slave of all. And not only am I going to serve everyone, but the way I serve them is I'm going to die. That's what he means when he says his blood. We've been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And I remember when I was preaching Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3 and talking about the future wrath of God and the present wrath of God, I was getting a lot of questions. Are we under this wrath? Is this wrath for us? And I'm happy to tell you, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. If you have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith, then you are not under the wrath of God. So none of these difficulties in your life are God's anger. They are all God's love. All of them. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Right? When we were God's enemies, Jesus died for us. Now that we're God's children, we live in the life of Jesus Christ not just relying on his death, but that resurrection life, that powerful living that comes from being in Jesus. And then here he comes. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God, that same word. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's through God that we, we were enemies of God. We were not in right relationship with God. It's through Jesus Christ that we are reconciled to God, meaning that we are brought back into right relationship. That's what righteousness means, right relationship with God. We're brought back into this right relationship with God. And now we boast, and really, there's three things that we boast in, if you noticed. We boast in the hope of the glory of God, by the way, I didn't talk about it then, but I'm going to bring it up now to say that glory of God is not just the glory that God has. Paul's not saying we, we boast in, like, in worshiping God. He's boasting that he will one day have the glory of God. And then he boasts in his suffering because it leads to perseverance, character, and hope. And that hope will never put us to shame. And then now he boasts in Jesus Christ. He will never be put to shame if he puts his hope in his future glory of God, in God, future glory in God. He will never be put to, show, to shame if he boasts in his sufferings because they're going to produce God's good work in him. And he'll never be put to shame if he boasts in Jesus Christ because it's through Jesus Christ that we have right relationship with God. He will only be honored. He will only receive glory for putting his trust in those things. There's so many other places in the Bible where we see the same message. It's not just here. But it's the same kind of thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he says, he says, I boast in my weaknesses because God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. No one boasts in their weaknesses apart from God. Nobody. But in Christ, you boast in your weaknesses because that's where the power of God, the goodness of God, the love of God are most manifest and it's that same concept here with suffering suffering is pretty much by definition where we feel the weakest right it's like i have no control over this situation i can't get out of it i can't fix it i can't correct it right and i know my example was totally lame but you know i can't make this traffic move any faster 
I can't make teleportation a real thing. I can't just choose to win the lottery and not have to worry about money ever again. I just like those just are not options. I feel very weak. I feel very incapable. I feel very stuck. That's where God shows up big. That's where God shines. When we come to a passage like this, and it talks about rejoicing or boasting or glorying in our sufferings, this is what we're, that identity statement is talking about, leaning joyfully into transformation. This is what real transformation looks like. Real transformation is not where you have these mountaintop experiences with God where everything's great and nothing's going wrong and you feel so close to God and everything feels wonderful and perfect. Real transformation typically doesn't happen in those points. Now, you might lay hold of some joy there, which is going to give you some strength to go into what's coming next, but it's the old adage, like, you go to the mountaintop so that you can get through the valley, right? The purpose of these great, wonderful, beautiful moments with the Lord is to get you through when you're trudging along and it feels like everything's horrible. And you don't know where God is. And you can't see Him. You can't hear Him. But you push through anyway. And what you do is when you go through a valley, what's on the other side of a valley? It's like another mountaintop, right? That's what a valley is. So when you push through those things, when you persevere through that, and you come out on the other side and you experience this other wonderful moment. And you look back and you're like, look how much I've grown. I didn't really grow so much on the mountaintop, but the mountaintop's where I kind of take stock of the growth that's happened along the way. The growth happens in the pit. The growth happens in the valley. And, you know, it's really the same, the same for, for our kids or when you were a kid. Like, I remember waking up one day and realizing, like, oh, like, I'm an inch and a half taller than I was yesterday. How did that happen? It's like, it didn't happen, right? It didn't happen overnight, but it happened so fast when I wasn't even noticing it. But, man, I was stubbing my toes a lot on things, and, man, I, you know, like, my body was maybe hurt a little bit or whatever, and then all of a sudden you realize, like, oh, I've grown. It's the same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. Now, I love that it ends with this great joy. If God loved me so much when I was his enemy, how much more can I revel in the love of God now that I'm made right with him, now that I have peace with him, now that I have relationship with him? And how much more then should I boast in Jesus Christ? And that's just a wonderful thing. To be able to boast in Jesus Christ not only his death, but his life. His life. And that's where we're going to be looking. That's where we're going next week, right? Because this week, between Palm Sunday and Easter, traditionally this has been a week of, you know, it's like a week of mourning. It's a week of sadness. It's the valley. It's the pit. Right? Thursday night, Jesus has his last supper with the disciples. One of them will betray him. And he says, one of you who's with me right now is going to betray me. And they all say, not me, not me, not me. You know, but it happens. And then Friday, you know, overnight he's arrested. He's put on this sham trial. He's put on a cross. He's nailed up to that tree. And there's the pain and agony of hours of waiting to die. And then finally he gives his last breath and they take his body and they put it in a cave for burial. And traditionally in the church on Friday night, all the lights go off and, you know, you, if you're in a church with all, like the altar, everything's covered, everything's concealed. And they stay off all day Saturday. And then on Sunday morning, you come in the lights are bright. The tomb is open. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. That's the life. That's the life that we get when we're willing to go through our own 
carrying of the cross, our own death, our own burial, and we experience that great resurrection life of Jesus Christ. But you don't get the life without the death. You can't. You don't get the joy without the suffering. You don't get the growth without the perseverance. That's why I was like, you know what? This is a good Palm Sunday passage. It reminds us what this week is all about, and it helps us to have greater joy for the week to come. So my takeaway for today is simply this. And I didn't focus too much on that grace piece, which is in the passage, uh, just because everything we've been talking about has been the grace of God. Like when we say that God, God died for sinners, Jesus died for sinners, that's grace. You didn't earn it. Grace, by definition, is getting what you don't deserve in the best possible way. Getting what you don't deserve in the best possible way. God's grace, which is our righteousness, because our righteousness is that gift of grace, allows us to live in peace because we know we are approved even in our sufferings. And where sufferings might have previously made us think that we're not approved by God, they now teach us, you know, because of our knowledge of the gospel, they now teach us that we are approved by God because only a father who loves his son or daughter disciplines them. So when you experience those hardships, remember this is God's gift to you because he cares more about your heart, more about your growth, more about your own uh, maturing in the Lord than he cares about your comfort. Let's pray. Well, God, it, this feels like a hard message, but it's also a good one. It feels like uh, it's a little scary, but it also gives us hope. It gives us hope to remember, Lord, that mo- no matter what comes, no matter what we face, Lord, you are not letting us go. You hold on to us tightly. Uh, you are the one who uh, will guarantee that we'll see it through to the end that because we have uh, your love, we're not afraid of your punishment, but we accept and welcome your discipline to make us into the people that you intend for us to be, better than we could ever imagine ourselves to be. And so, God, we will lean joyfully into transformation. We will take those mountaintop experiences and let them give us that drive and push to make it through the valley. Lord, and when we come out on the other side, we'll, we'll thank you and rejoice in that you've done this work in us. And it's all for your own glory, all for your own sake and for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of your, your uh, great purposes in this world. So, Lord, thank you. Lord, I pray that as we um, go throughout this week that we wouldn't forget like I forgot last week. But Lord, when we do, remind us to renew our faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ.